Thomas Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, Prime Minister Scott Morrison says after coronavirus, Australia will have a gas-fuelled recovery. But what if the Prime Minister's picked the wrong fuel to create that boom? What happens if gas is, well, not a gas? It's great to have your company on the latest episode of The Money Minutes. And look, today, it's all about the future of energy here in Australia. This year alone, tens of billions of dollars have been written off the value of Australian gas projects, and tens of billions more of future projects have either been delayed or canned altogether. That's because in the wake of coronavirus and the global recession, the price of energy, doesn't matter whether it's oil, coal or gas, they've all collapsed. But there's something else here. The government is determined to cut the price of gas to domestic users to attempt to overcome a significant disadvantage that local manufacturers have compared with their overseas counterparts. This means jobs, highly skilled and highly paid jobs, are either disappearing or are struggling to be maintained. Now, I've told the story plenty of times about Australia's largest brickmaker, Brickworks, and its chief executive, Lindsay Partridge, who discovered it was cheaper to make a brick in America, pack it on a ship, and send it here as it was to make the brick here in Australia. That's how crazy the whole economics of manufacturing, wages and energy had got here in Australia. But let's go to the Prime Minister just a month or so ago, announcing the new energy future that he sees will see Australia rebounding into the future. First, maintain that downward pressure, down, down, on electricity prices, while simultaneously developing the backbone of a reliable lower emissions national electricity market for the next decade and beyond. Secondly, get more gas more often and more reliable. By resetting our East Coast gas market, unlocking additional gas to drive recovery, paving the way ultimately for a world-leading Australian gas hub to support high-wage jobs, including and especially in manufacturing. Thirdly, to reinforce Australia's sovereign fuel security recognising that government must play an active strategic role to ensure Australians have unbroken access to the essentials of our way of life. Today you'll hear from Bruce Robertson, an energy analyst who has long advocated a push towards renewable energy as the long-term solution to Australia's needs. The problem of that argument in the past is that Australia has been so reliant on the sale of coal and gas for its economic well-being. After iron ore, gas has recently overtaken coal as our biggest export earner. But what happens if our major customers in the future no longer need or want those key exports, coal or gas? Where does that leave the country? Where does it leave the billions we've invested in vital infrastructure across this nation? Because if there's one thing I've always known, and leave your beliefs aside, this is all about the market, your customers, their needs, and how you adapt to future change.
the biggest issues for Australia is its future energy, not only needs, but also its markets as well. And the reason for that is because as potentially uh, the business, or if you like, the demand for energy changes, and you can see it's moving away from coal, doesn't really matter what you think about climate change or where that goes, it is actually the market that's moving. But the similar thing could also happen for gas, which has now become Australia's second largest export earner. Now, for this and a man who's done a lot of analysis on this, I go to Bruce Robertson, who is the Energy Finance Analyst for Gas and LNG for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and he's on the line right now. Many thanks for your time, Bruce. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Ross. Okay, so the coronavirus has had all sorts of impacts on the world, and one of the impacts has been for energy prices to collapse. So if we're talking about uh, oil prices right now in the $30 US a barrel, what you've seen is a commensurate fall also in the price of liquefied natural gas, or, or gas generally, if you like. The impact of whether the demand is dropping because of coronavirus or whether that's something more systemic, just try and explain that to me. Well, what we've had is we've had a, a tremendous boom in, in LNG production. And essentially, like what happens in most commodity markets, everyone saw the same opportunity at the same time. And there's been overbuilding of LNG plants. And over the top of the LNG, overbuilding of the LNG plants, we have, uh, we have the coronavirus. And, and so that has compounded the problem with, with with overproduction, which is occurring. Okay, so if we go even here to Australia, there are decisions being made by some of Australia's big gas producers. One is Woodside. There have got the Burrup hub expansion off the WA coast, uh, which they're deferring. Then there's Santos. It's a it's got a Barossa project, which is north of Darwin. That's about seven billion dollars. They've also delayed a decision on that one. And then there's also other things, including the development of the seventeen billion dollar Scarborough gas field, and that's been now pushed out until next year to see what happens with energy prices and also demand for LNG. Do you think it makes Australia vulnerable that we have poured so much money into the development of liquefied natural gas that now behind iron ore is our second largest export, and yet right now because of the market and because of international demand that we now find ourselves potentially vulnerable as a result? We most certainly do. If, if you look at the gas industry, far from being an engine for recovery, it's a break on the economy. And, and this is a key point. What we're actually seeing is we are seeing very, very uh, large contractions in employment uh, in the gas industry. We are seeing contractions uh, from the gas industry of between 10 and 25% in the number of employees they have, depending on the company. So, so it, it, it's a major contraction going on. And stimulating a contracting industry is no way to get the economy going again. Okay, but that to me seems to be exactly what the government is trying to do. So say, for example, even in September, just the last month or so, Scott Morrison has promised what's known as a gas-led recovery from coronavirus. Effectively, he's saying that uh, uh, the, the government, if other private enterprise companies such as AGL do not come in and replace, say, the Liddell coal-fired power station, a controversial one in New South Wales, Hunter Valley, then the government will come in and underwrite a new 
new giant gas-fired power station there. Similar other examples might be also out there. There's another one out there um, because they're concerned, obviously, that there's going to be a gap in Australia's energy market. So the two things related, the fact that Australia is getting deferment on decisions for export-led gas projects at the same time that the government here is saying we might actually subsidise gas-fired power stations to make certain there are no gaps in the electricity grid. Well, look, it's very problematic what they're doing. You know, they've set up what is supposedly a market, this national electricity market, and and now they're deciding they want to intervene in that market uh, and and subsidise a, a large gas-fired power station. Gas for, for use for gas-fired power generation has fallen 58% since 2000. 14. And there's one very simple reason for that, Ross. It's simply not economic to produce power, baseload power with gas. Gas peaking plants are, are still very economic in the Australian system. But if you want to run a power plant all the time, it's simply not economic to, to do that with gas because gas in Australia is prohibitively expensive. And is there any way, given the fact, in fact Australia is the second largest exporter behind Qatar in terms of creating gas and exporting it to world markets, is there any way in which we could make the gas cheaper for Australian domestic uh, consumption? I know, say, for example, that Scott Morrison, when he made these announcements, also talked about creating gas reservations, which, of course, was one of the criticisms when um, all of that hub around Curtis Island, around Gladstone, uh, when the hub of LNG plants were created there, that there was always a criticism that the government of the time did not create a gas reservation for domestic consumption. Well, yeah, there was that criticism, but to be fair on the government, they were lulled into a false sense of security by the undertakings given by the gas industry. And those undertakings were very clear in their approval documents that they would develop new gas fields for export and they wouldn't buy out of the existing fields that were, were supplying the domestic market. Now, nothing is further from the truth. The truth is what they ended up doing is, is they ended up developing their own fields and found that those costs were far too high, um, multiples of what they expected them to be. So then they went and bought gas out of the cheap gas out of the domestic market, forcing up the price for Australian consumers to above international parity pricing. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're paying more for contract gas at the moment, for example, than our customers in Japan are. So so our government, if they want to fix the problem, really have to uh, introduce a full domestic gas reservation policy on all existing and, and future fields. Just doing it on future fields will achieve precisely nothing. So one other aspect of this, because we're talking about both domestic and also the international markets, uh, one thing also that is I'm cognizant of, especially when it comes to those international markets, and you make the observation in your latest report you've put out, is that Japan and Korea have had firm net zero emissions commitments by 2050 uh, and 2060 for, for China as well. So it means longer term, given the fact that LNG, the burning of a fossil fuel, does create those, those emissions. 
it's a question of whether their demand for LNG long time, their their demand for gas is going to diminish as they try and find other energy sources. Yeah, well, the, the, there hasn't been a lot of modelling work done on this yet. Uh, the International Energy Agency published its big document, the World Energy Outlook, and it really didn't put a lot in there about a net zero emission scenario that we now find ourselves in as an export nation. What they did say was that by 2030, 2030, not 2050, by 2030, coal demand has to fall by 60% and primary energy demand, which is energy in total, has to fall by 17% to meet a net zero emissions target. So, and and they, they envisage getting there by changing consumer habits and and energy efficiency uh, to, to reduce demand, overall demand. So, so in LNG, what we will see is we will see a preference by countries. They will prefer piped gas over LNG. Now, if we take our second largest market, China, um, it has substantial resources that it can get from Russia and from Central Asia via pipe. And piped gas is far less greenhouse gas intensive than LNG because to make LNG, you need to burn 9% of the gas. And then to ship it, you need to burn a further 2 to 6% of the gas. So all up around 13% of the gas gets burnt in the LNG process. So it's likely that countries like China will prefer to get uh, their gas out of a pipe rather than LNG. And it's likely that LNG demand over time will decline. Okay, so then come back to the the alternatives because while they're looking for net zero emissions, that doesn't mean they're not going to emit. It means that they've got offsets or that there's something else is happening. So they have net zero emissions. But the alternatives right now, of course, whenever people talk about, say, for example, renewable energy, they do talk about the uh, whether the grid is robust enough to be able to cope with the influx of renewable energy into it. Do you think, again, there, there is enough renewable energy for baseload power, given what we saw a few years ago in South Australia where they clearly had big storms and had massive outages and as a result did not have, if you like, the the backup. Even though I know there were transmission lines went down, that was a totally different argument. But what I'm sort of wondering here is whether there is enough baseload power that can be generated from those renewables that can make the way of, say, for example, the gas-fired power station, which was seen to be either the stopgap or the alternative to coal-fired power stations. Okay, if, if we have a look, there are a couple of things. There, the technology is changing rapidly at the moment. So that's the first point, and particularly in batteries where costs have fallen dramatically for grid-scale batteries. And we are seeing now projects being proposed in Australia. Naon, the big French multinational, is proposing to build one of these batteries in South Australia that make the Tesla big battery look tiny. Um, they are proposing a project that's around 10 times the size of what was at the time the biggest battery in the world. So battery technology is becoming grid scale and with significant storage behind it. Now, that isn't the only answer because obviously it only has about four hours of storage. It can cater for the evening peak quite 
comfortably a grid scale battery. But if it goes on for a number of days, it can't really, you know, it can't, doesn't have the opportunity to recharge it. But so, so looking, looking at, at, at this, batteries will take part of gas's market share. The other thing that's happening is the Australian energy market operator has definitively said that we have enough gas peaking plants in Australia now. And what's going to happen going forward, out to 2040, the need for gas is lower in 2040 than it is today. Lower, not more. Our government keeps telling us we need more gas. And in actual fact, we need less gas. And is it also a case that while we might need less gas in the future, that the world technically is also requiring less gas because of coronavirus and because of the the shock, the global recession that's taken place? And so, as I say, that's seen itself in not only that lower lower oil price, but also then the the lower uh, gas prices that also has wreaked havoc on especially the U.S., gas industry, which had been, if you like, one of Donald Trump's shining lights. But right now, it's actually turned completely 180 degrees on where it was only 18 months ago or so. Well, look, there is likely to be a very large rebound in the price of gas in the US. And I can say that I don't usually make predictions, but I can say that quite confidently, just simply based on the collapse that has occurred in the shale fracking industry in the US. And it's not a recession. It's not even a downturn. It's not even a severe recession. It, it's a collapse. We've seen uh, the operating drill rigs are down 72% year on year. 72% they're down. That is a collapse. Um, that, that, that is a hell of a collapse. And so what does that actually mean? The, the, the cycle in shale gas is, is pretty quick. In other words, I mean, if you put in a new well, you can get it going quite quickly. And the peak production is pretty soon after you put it in and it stays there for about like 18 months. But then it tails off the production pretty rapidly in a shale well, like a coal seam gas well. So they're short-lived um, coal seam gas wells and, and, and shale wells, um, but they can be put in quickly. The problem you've got in the US is you've had this collapse in the number of operating drill rigs, which means going forward a year, you will see production come off quite dramatically, both for oil and gas out of the US, which should lead to a rebound in the price. And, and so, so that's what's occurring in the US. In, in Australia, we are protected, have been protected a bit by our long-term contracts for LNG. But over time, Australia will come under pressure and expansion projects particularly will come under pressure by the fact that Qatar is opening up a massive new gas field. Qatar is just a whisker under Australia. It's the second largest exporter in the world of LNG, only by a whisker. Um, But it is looking at expanding its production by 64%, 64 by 2027. It's a massive number. And there's one observation I'd make, Bruce, and that is, say, for example, Qatar, which almost 
solely relies on those gas exports um, for its own GDP, its own economic well-being, um, that it's likely, like we've seen with some of the oil-producing countries in the past, to continue to produce more and more and more gas, even at lower prices, because that's really the only thing that is propping up their economy. Whereas Australia, which is a more diversified economy, has got iron ore, has got agriculture, has got a range of other things. And even though we might take a hit if we export less LNG and at cheaper prices as well. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that is actually going to completely cause our our economy to collapse. Most certainly, Qatar is very reliant on LNG, particularly LNG, and and not only that, Ross, but there's another reason why they're going to go for this massive um, expansion. The, the the field of which they're talking of developing is called the North Field. Um, the Iranians call it the South Pars field because it's actually the same field of gas. It just has this artificial line going through it called a border. And so the Iranians have decided to develop their half of the field. And if the Qataris don't get going, essentially they're going to lose a lot of gas to the Iranians. And they don't really want to see them losing a lot of the gas um, to the Iranians. So they're going to develop their half pretty much come what may. And already to get customers, they are cutting the long-term contract prices by around 22%. Um, so it's a massive cut in the price um, that they're that they're they're doing. So this puts a new projects in Australia under tremendous pressure because all of a sudden they've got to match that pricing of 22% lower, and they're competing against an extremely low-cost producer in the form of Qatar. It is the the world's lowest-cost producer, Qatar. They and, know what they're doing in LNG. Yeah, and so the other thing that grabbed my attention out of your report that came out is that the gas industry in the first six months of this year alone um, uh, announced $25 billion in write-offs, $25 billion we're talking about. Um, and what you said is that gas companies here in Australia have lost between 58 and 69% of their value since January 2011. So we're talking some nine and a half years ago. I mean, you know, what it, what it goes to show is despite the billions that have been invested um, into the gas industry in Australia, that the returns that were promised, the tax revenues that were promised by uh, governments in the past have simply, to, to the extent that they were promised, have not eventuated. Oh, most certainly. You know, no, the gas industry is a very low employer of people um, and it's a very poor income taxpayer. And uh, in terms of royalties, they too are, are very, very low. Um, it, it hasn't been uh, the boom that, 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 that was promised, essentially. Um, it, it, it really hasn't. And, and investors particularly have been scorched uh, by, the, um, by, by the, the, the companies I was talking about were, were, were companies such as Woodside, Origin, Santos. These are big players in the LNG game. I'm not cherry-picking small little ones that haven't done well. These are the big leading companies that, that, that have fallen by, by that sort of, you know, 50 to 70-odd percent um, since 19, uh, yeah, in the last nine and a half years. It, it, it is quite incredible um, what, what has happened in this industry, the wealth that has been destroyed. And so just a final one for you, Bruce. Are you confident looking forward the 10 or 20 years that there will be 
uh, significant advances in technology to the point at which renewables in particular, but other forms of energy, can replace what gas and coal currently do in Australia's economy, because that's the key right now. What you don't want is to have a lack of resource, or indeed to have industry either A, disappearing offshore, or disappearing altogether, because you don't have energy at a cheap enough price for those local consumers. Yeah, well, look, a bit does depend on the government. Um, At the moment, we don't have a very forward-looking government. Uh, We have a government with its eye on the rear vision mirror, in terms of coal and gas, um, you know, it is likely that uh, well, coal will definitely go into a major decline and LNG will follow eventually. Uh, so so that's, that's the outlook for those two export industries. So what can we replace them with? What, what can we do? Well, the bright star on the horizon for Australia that, that could be done if, if uh, it gets some government support uh, is is hydrogen renewable hydrogen and really that's what we've got to be looking towards doing is 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 getting this industry going to try and replace some of the export revenues that we are inevitably going to use in coal and gas unfortunately our politicians of all persuasions of all persuasions are misleading their constituents as to the future of coal and LNG in this country. The future is not bright. Our customers don't want the product as, as witnessed by their, their net zero emissions uh, emissions commitments. And really it doesn't matter what where any of us, you or I or anyone else thinks about the politics or the science of climate change, it's a reality for our export markets. And that's the way we have to move. Bruce Robertson, Energy Finance Analyst for Gas and LNG for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. We've always had a lot of good chats about these areas. We've debated it sometimes as well, I know, Bruce, but I really appreciate your time here on the podcast today. Always a pleasure, Ross. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for the Money Minutes for this episode. As always, many thanks for your time, for taking the time to listen. Of course, you can give us your feedback via Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook, wherever you like, plus also via your podcast app, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. This has been a Talent Corporate Action. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes. Money Minutes.